Hello and welcome everybody. This is Dr. Tully for History 256. Today we're going to be talking about the Roaring Twenties. We're talking about the Roaring Twenties today. So what I want you to do is I want you to go on to Moodle and get the PowerPoint for the Roaring Twenties. Uh, Bathwater gin, flappers, and dancing the Charleston on a flagpole. Absolutely. Talking about the Roaring Twenties. Now with the Roaring Twenties, what we're really talking about is a lot of Republican administrations. Uh, the 1920s are dominated by the Republicans. There are three Republican presidents during this time period, and their administrations really form the backbone of what is later, you know, conceived as the 20s. Um, remember, the country before this time, it, it still tends to be fairly conservative. Woodrow Wilson was a Democrat. However, it did upset a lot of people that he got involved in World War I after he promised not to get in war. Uh, Republicans come in very hard in the 1918 midterms, and so it's really no surprise that they are going to win the 1920 election. Uh, the nominee in this time period is Warren G. Harding. Uh, Warren G. Harding, and he's yet another Ohio president. I'm telling you, this time period, like, every president is from Ohio. Uh, very much a party guy. A party guy in the sense of the Republican Party. Very much part of the Republican Party. Uh, not too much of a personality on his own. Well, we'll talk about his personality in a while. Woo-wee! But as a politician, very much known for being uh, very much within the party. Uh, he was chosen by the party, but he, he was a quote-unquote party man. You know, basically he was not real much of an individualist. Pretty much went with what the party was saying. Very status quo. Uh, his came promise is actually a uh, malapropism. Basically he misspeaks. He says he wants to bring the country back to normality. Uh, he mispronounces it as normalcy. And this becomes his real watchword, uh, normalcy. He says basically, you know, the United States has gotten involved in World War I. We are very involved with uh, international affairs, which we haven't been done before. That's not normal for the United States. We need to get back to the status quo, get back to normal. So basically what he called it, normalcy. And as president, he does a lot of that. He basically does a lot of things to reassure the country things are going back to normal. Uh, he would do things like, for instance, have he and his cabinet sit on the front lawn of the White House with newspapers and basically read the newspapers while reporters take pictures, basically reaffirming that everything's going okay in America, everything's normal, there's nothing to worry about, it's just good old-fashioned, boring, normal America. Uh, if you ever one slide, you're going to see a picture of, uh, of Warren G. Harding. You can see him right there. He's got very bushy eyebrows. Um, kind of looks like Mr. Carson from Downton Abbey, if you ever watch that show, which I don't think you have, but maybe your parents have. Uh, looks very much like one of the guys from Downton Abbey. He's one of our first real modern presidents. Uh, really, really our first modern president, as we might know it. Uh, really tries to use the media, for instance, uh, he is our first uh, president to make a record. Uh, not like he does a singing record or anything, but it's a record of his voice, basically giving a speech, using some of this new technology. Uh, one of the first presidents really used like, the media as that sort of purpose. Uh, the country is becoming a lot more modern in the 1920s, a lot more of the country that we know today. I would argue, as we do later on, because that's when the country really does become modern. Other people say it's the 1890s, I'm more than 1920s. Uh, he tries to be very status quo, very non-controversial, keep things fairly level. Uh, however, he 
behind the scenes is not very conventional, not very boring. Um, remember his presidency, his public appeal is trying to be boring, trying to be normal, uh, bring the country back to some sense of stability. Uh, that's not the case. Uh, for instance, before he becomes president, while he's a senator from Ohio, he has an affair with a young, well, not a young lady, but a middle-aged lady. Uh, you know, somebody about his age. Uh, they have a very torrid affair. They, you know, send all sorts of filthy letters to each other. He sends a lot of filthy letters to her. Um, you can Google them. I'm not going to talk about them, but uh, they are filthy. Like, filthy, filthy letters. He talks about himself in third person in very disturbing ways. Absolutely. Uh, when he's nominated for the president, he basically tells the Republican Party, hey, uh, there's this woman. I had an affair with her. Um, just so you know, <laughs> I've had an affair. Uh, she's got letters on me. You might have to pay her off to keep her quiet. The Republican Party do pay her off to keep her quiet. Uh, it's only later on that her letters are published. Uh, basically, their letters get sent to the Library of Congress under the condition they don't get published until relatively recently. I believe they get published around like 2010, 2008. Might be even 09, as late as 09. Uh, you can read them. They're pretty filthy. That's before he was president. Uh, the really sordid one, if you go over one picture, is what happens... Whoops. Oh, whoops. That's not it. That's not sordid at all. Uh, that's his campaign slogan you see right there, Law and Order, America First. There he is with his vice president, Calvin Coolidge. Uh, Richard Nixon kind of rips off the Law and Order thing from, from Warren G. Harding. Uh, likewise, America First is an idea for um, you know the presidency. Uh, as a slogan, America First, you might hear this nowadays from Donald Trump, uh, originally done by Warren G. Harding. Sorry, that's not the scandalous bit. Go over one slide, you'll see the scandalous bit. Ooh, scandal. Uh, yes, Warren G. Harding also had an affair while he was in the White House with somebody very, 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 very young. He's like in his 50s. Uh, this girl's like about, six, not 16, she's about 18, 20 years old. She's very young, so about y'all's age. Uh, Warren G. Harding's in his 50s. Uh, basically, she starts out as a teenage admirer uh, from a Republican booster, basically, uh, her dad writes, it's like, hey, my daughter's really obsessed with you. Like, she has all your campaign posters in her room. Um, do you think you could sign one for her? And, you know, he, he goes to this person's house. He's like, oh, I can do more than sign one. Uh, don't you want to get a picture with me? Take a photograph with me. So, you know, she's all blushed. She's like, sure. Uh, later on, he invites her to his office. Like, all during his Senate campaign, she, like, goes to his office and, like, sits on his lap. Uh, when he, she turns 20, they go to a hotel and do things. And they continue doing things while he's president. Uh, she even writes a book about this after he dies in 1927, where basically she talks about all the times they did um, scandals, things in the White House together, even fathering a child. Uh, she actually gets pregnant with Warren G. Harding's illegitimate child while he's president. This is super, super top secret. Um, after it comes out in the later 20s, it's not believed. It's basically she seems like a crazy person. However, uh, recently they've done DNA tests, and they have proved that, indeed, that is Warren G. Tarding's, uh, well, the child has since died. The child was born in the 1920s. Uh, however, you know, basically they, they did a DNA test of the grandchildren, and they proved that, indeed, that was Warren G. Harding's child. So there you go, a very scandalous president when it comes to his love life. And I, I cannot iterate enough just how filthy 
those love nerds are. Like, they're like NC-87. Like, you got to be old and have seen some stuff to, like, read some of them. But that's not the only scandal he does. Um, a bigger scandal in the political sense is the Teapot Dome scandal. Uh, this is the Teapot Dome in Wyoming. It doesn't look like anything because the spout fell off, but um, because of erosion. But uh, for a while, it was a rock formation that kind of looked like a teapot. It kind of had like a, a spout on one side. Uh, it is on federal land. It is on federal land. Uh, federal land is protected land. You're not supposed to do anything on federal land. That's not what happens. Uh, Warren G. Harding, Secretary of the Interior, that's the person in charge of federal land, basically is taking illegal bribes from oil companies to drill on federally protected land in the Teapot Dome. Uh, it's in the middle of Wyoming. I've actually gone there once myself. I was very disappointed. It's like two or three hours off the interstate, and it looks like nothing. Like I said, um, erosion has caused the, the spout thing that made it look like a teapot to fall off, so it really looks like nothing. Uh, this could have been a very big, big, big scandal. This could have taken down Warren G. Harding's presidency because, like I said, this is very large very, very large scandal, like super large scandal. Uh, however, most of these details don't come out until after something happens. Uh, before the scandal really comes out, Warren G. Harding over one slide dies. Uh, Warren G. Harding dies, um, theoretically, of a cerebral hemorrhage. There is a little bit, a bit of controversy. Uh, apparently, Warren G. Harding's wife knew about his affairs, and so there's always a rumor that maybe she poisoned him. Um... However, he had been sick for a while. He had been sick for a while. So that in of itself doesn't really, you know, have too much weight behind it. Uh, when he dies, a lot of the, the severity of the scandals dies, if that makes sense. Like, it still comes out that, wow, all this Teapot Dome stuff is pretty bad. Um, a lot of Warren G. Harding's cabinet is fairly corrupt. However, that doesn't really seem to go in with his vice president. Uh, his vice president is Calvin Coolidge. Uh, Calvin Coolidge... If you see him right there, he's, he's known as Silent Cal. Uh, his nickname is Silent Cal because he doesn't talk. Uh, he does not talk. He, he is known for not talking. There are many famous stories about him not talking. Let me see if I can tell you a few of them. Uh, okay, fairly famous one is basically he's at a dinner at the White House, and this socialite sits, ne sits next to him. It's like, you know, President Harding, um, I bet my roommate that I could get you to say more than three words to me. Apparently, um, not, did I say Harding? I meant Coolidge. President Coolidge, I bet my roommate, um, you'll say more than three words to me. Calvin Coolidge looks at her and says, you lose. That's two words. You lose. Uh, likewise, another time an architect comes to the White House, is, is touring around and talking about all the fancy architecture and designs of the White House and saying how wonderful it must be for Calvin Coolidge to live in a place this wonderful. Apparently, Coolidge's response after hearing all this was, suits me. Just suits me. Uh, this even applies to his marriage. Uh, we'll talk about his wife in just a second. Um, he uh, Apparently, his wedding night, basically, he and his wife are in their hotel, and he brings out a suitcase full of socks that need to be repaired, basically socks with holes in them. And she's like, Calvin, did you only marry me so I would darn your socks? And he's like, doesn't hurt. So a lot of these stories come out about old Silent Cal. He's incredibly popular, weirdly enough. Um, even though he doesn't talk, he's also our first president to appear on the radio, so go figure. Um, incredibly popular. Uh, people really like Calvin Coolidge. Uh, very much seen as a classic Republican president. Uh, you know, let big business be big business. 
very popular. Not really charismatic, but people kind of like his lack of charisma. Um, like I said, he was straight savage by the way he talked about stuff. Uh, if you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of Calvin Coolidge. Uh, it comes out later. We find out much later that actually while he was president, Calvin Coolidge was suffering from very, very deep depression. Uh, he was suffering severely from depression while he was president. Had nothing to do with becoming president. Um, apparently, when he first became president, uh, fairly early on, his son, his teenage son, was playing badminton on the White House lawn without wearing shoes. Um, he got a blister that got infected, and the infection actually killed his son. And so basically, Calvin Coolidge, and this was very early in his presidency, and Coolidge's thought was, you know, if I was never president, uh, my son would be alive. And he hated being president in that sense. He was depressed pretty much. He had, like, clinical depression the entire time he was president. So I kind of feel bad for Calvin Coolidge. Uh, his wife is Grace Coolidge. If you go over one slide, you're going to see Grace Coolidge. Uh, Grace Coolidge was known for being our first, quote-unquote, glamorous first lady. Uh, she was known for being very beautiful, uh, dressed in the fashion of the time. Uh, we'll talk about flappers later. She was very uh, a modernist first lady. Um, you know, very glamorous, they said. Very, very pretty. Um, I keep saying glamorous. Just like, you know, the, the, the idea of a glamorous first lady was something that wasn't really around before this time. You do have that with Grace Coolidge refined, you know, while, while Calvin Coolidge was very stodgy and closed off and, you know, he was very quiet, um, Grace Coolidge was known for being very eloquent, uh, talking, you know, very nicely, very charming woman, uh, very, I said eloquent before, just charming, charismatic, talkative, life of the party, just pretty much everything her husband wasn't. But even though she was our super glamorous first lady, she had a very entertaining pet. If you go over one slide, you'll see her pet raccoon. That's right. You can be the gorgeous, glorious first lady and have your pet raccoon. So I just love that picture of the, of the pet raccoon. Uh, Calvin Coolidge does get reelected once in 1924. He could run again in 1928. He decides not to, though, uh, because, remember, he doesn't particularly like being president. And so instead he decides to kind of step aside. Also, the guy who becomes president is super popular. Uh, this time period is Herbert Hoover. If you see Herbert Hoover right there, we're going to talk about him in, well, right now. Uh, Herbert Hoover really comes to the nation's awareness um, with the flood of 1927. Uh, a little bit about his background. Herbert Hoover is a self-made man, like a truly self-made man, born like an orphan. He's part of the first graduating class of Stanford, uh, which is that fancy school in California. Uh, makes millions of dollars in mining. He's one of our richest presidents. Um, adjusted for inflation, I think Trump is a little before um, Herbert Hoover, and they're both behind George Washington. But Herbert Hoover like made millions. Um, sent as a wonderkin. Uh, wonderkin is basically like a, he was almost like the the child genius. Uh, he's fairly young actually when, we, when he becomes president. He lives for a very long time after he's president. He lives like until the '60s after he's president. One of our younger presidents, not our youngest president, but one of our younger presidents, that's Herbert Hoover. Uh, he really comes to nationwide awareness for his efforts in 1927. Um, in 1927, actually, go over one slide, you're going to see a, a picture of Herbert Hoover. There he is. If you go over one more slide, you're going to see the 1927 flood. Uh, the 1927 flood was one of the worst, if not the worst, flood in U.S. history because a major river around here flooded called the Mississippi. Um, if you can imagine the Mississippi River flooding, it's catastrophic. 
Um, it was really bad. Like, I cannot iterate how bad the flood of 1927 was. It destroyed everything, particularly around here. Uh, particularly if you're talking about, um, like, Mississippi, Arkansas, um, Louisiana, uh, north of New Orleans. In fact, one of the reasons, actually the reason why New Orleans was spared from the flooding was because, uh, basically, those in charge literally dynamited the levee. Uh, pretty much, they literally blew up the levee north of New Orleans, so it would flood, basically, in sharecropper, poor people lands, so that the city of New Orleans would be saved. Now, this upset a lot of poor people, <laughs> because they thought, understandably, that, hey, this flood would have destroyed New Orleans, but because they don't care about poor people, they are going to be blowing us up. And remember, a lot of these poor people are African-American, so that they feel the government doesn't speak for them. Herbert Hoover is the guy in charge of the relief efforts. He basically coordinates between the government and private industry uh, relief efforts, getting food and things to the uh, various people who are, uh, you know, stranded by the flood. Uh, it's also remarkable because in this time period, he actually does not differentiate based upon race. Um, Herbert Hoover, weirdly enough, in 1928, gets a lot of the black vote. Uh, remember, in this time period, African-Americans who could vote voted Republican, and a lot of them did so because of Herbert Hoover. Uh, they do so because of Herbert Hoover. Now, Herbert Hoover comes in very popular in the election of 1928. Uh, he's seen as the boy genius. Uh, the Great Humanitarian is a nickname he's going to get. As we're going to see when we get into the Great Depression, it's kind of ironic because what he does in the Great Depression kind of goes, uh, kind of subverts that. Now, as I mentioned before, these are all Republican presidents. Uh, they have some basic philosophies and principles for governing. Uh, these are classic Republicans. Some of the things they do are something that Republicans nowadays might still do. Uh, their basic philosophy is to help American business. Uh, there's the idea that the business of America is business. What's good for General Motors is good for the country. Basically, what we need to do to help out the country is just interfere in business as less as we can. We shouldn't interfere with business very much. Let it do that. How they do this specifically, specific goals and policies, two things, both of which Republicans would do nowadays. Number one, get rid of regulations and reforms. You might hear a lot from Republican politicians that we need to deregulate things. Um, it's providing you know, too many barriers for business. Small business is you know, impeded too much by, by regulations. We need to deregulate. That's something they did quite a bit of. Uh, the federal government deregulated, uh, so basically it, what's best for business is for business to grow bigger, and the best way we can do that is by not messing around with it. Likewise, they lower taxes, something you'll still hear Republicans talk about. In fact, that's something about the Republican platform that has never changed, deregulation, lowering taxes. They say if we lower taxes, more businesses will be able to spend money. That's better for everybody. Now, the exception, they actually do expand the role of government in a few things, they do expand the role of government in a few things. Uh, in particular, they create some of the first social welfare programs. So some of your first, like, government aid, government welfare, if you want to call it, like food stamps type things. It's not quite food stamps. But they do that the federal government is going to give relief and catastrophes are for those who need it. It comes about. Likewise, they begin regulating the radio and the airwaves. Uh, radio stations can only broadcast on certain frequencies. That is something that is regulated by the government. So even though, by and large, these Republican presidents are all about deregulation, uh, they do expand the role of government in some things. 
Now, 1920s society and culture is very much a time of flux and very much a time of conflict. There's a lot of conflict going on because the country is changing so much. There's a lot of different values at play. It's basically the values of the old America versus new America. Uh, for instance, rural slash small town values versus a new very urban mass culture. Remember, I think it was uh, Raceland or Chackbee, we talked a lot about it in this class. This idea that, you know, the values of Raceland and Chackbee, they're very small, uh, very much centered on family, very much, uh, you know, centered around producer values, uh, very much centered around, you know, various things, uh, very traditional roles for gender and other things like that. Um, when it comes to spending money, don't, don't spend too much. You know, what you buy is not really your, your self-worth. That is in great contrast to this new urban mass culture. This new urban mass culture is all about, you know, what can you buy? What can you spend? Um, your product shows you a lot that is very um, important about yourself. Same thing with moral standards. You know, uh, moral standards when it comes to dating, when it comes to courtship, when it comes to family life. That's the traditional moral standard. Uh, the new urban morals are different. Uh, dating changes tremendously. We're going to talk about that in a second. Likewise, work ethic versus consumer ethic. This is the old producer versus consumer values. Uh, producer values are, you know, all about your work ethic. What can you produce? What can you make? Consumer values are what can you buy. Now, what causes all these changes? Well, the first is a growth in urban life. Uh, the 1920 census reported that more people were living in cities than anywhere else in the country. Uh, before this time, every census showed that more people were living in rural areas, living on farms. But as of the 1920s, it showed that more Americans were living in cities than anywhere else. Now, this has actually changed as of the 1990 census, which shows that more Americans are living in suburbs than anywhere else. We'll talk about that later. Um... There's also a level of anonymity in a big city. We talked about this before, but there's a very big appeal of anonymity. When you're in a big city, nobody really knows you. There's a lot more to do, but people don't necessarily know you. Not everybody's all up in your business. When you live in a large city, you can see somebody and legitimately never see them again the rest of your life, even though you're going to be in the same city. Um, you know, even... Even in a place like New Orleans or Baton Rouge, which is not like the largest city in the world, you can very easily live your entire life and never see the same people like at the grocery store or anything. Now, another source of change is the revolt of the intellectuals. Um, before this time period, uh, remember that the traditional goal of the intellectual was to provide guidance for the whole society. Think about these progressive reformers. They, you know, they seek the expert to use their specialized knowledge to help out everybody. Provide guidance for everybody. Uh, this changes after World War One. After the dissolution of World War One, a new generation becomes very jaded about this. A very jaded generation comes into being, which means like, hey, we lived through World War One, um, doing all this stuff for the good of the country, for the good of uh, humanity. It's not worth it. It just caused everybody to die. Uh, they're they're much more jaded, much more interested in individual endeavors. They're not for the benefit of all society. Um, some of the, for instance, you have the lost generation. If you go over one slide, you're going to see pictures of the lost generation. Uh, there's some writers in there you might recognize. For instance, the guy on the left, sorry, the guy on the right with a mustache is Ernest Hemingway. Ernest Hemingway drove an ambulance. He didn't even fight in World War I. He drove an ambulance for, in World War I 
And he saw a lot of death and destruction. He's like, wow, is it all worth it? All this death and destruction, is it worth it? It just seems miserable. Um, I'm not going to go back to America and just, you know, live my picket fence life. I'm going to spend the rest of my life, like, in Spain or in Cuba, bullfighting, you know, watching bullfighting, going fishing, uh, drinking a lot. Uh, same thing with F. Scott Fitzgerald. If you see there one more slide, you have Ed Scott Fitzgerald. He writes The Great Gatsby, which really embodies the 1920s and the sense of disillusionment. Uh, he, too, fought in World War I. He actually fought in World War I. He, you know, he's kind of disillusioned by it. Uh, there, there's him and his wife, Zelda. Um, if you ever heard of the Legend of Zelda games, it's named after Zelda, Zelda Fitzgerald. Uh, they're very much known as partiers. They drink a lot. They have a very contentious marriage. Um, she drinks quite a bit, too. She's known for being kind of erratic in that. Uh, very disillusioning in this whole time of this idea that, hey, we're young. with the world in front of us, and it's just going to, you know, we. what's the point of serving humanity? What's the point of serving our country? What did World War I get us? Uh, to protect the rights of the individuals, uh, some groups do come together to form the ACLU after the Palmer Raids. Uh, the Palmer Raids were done. We talked a little bit about that last class. Uh, kind of taking down um, supposed communist and anarchist. Basically, the American Civil Liberties Union, which is still around today, uh, it fights for individual rights over the rule of government. Basically, this idea that we need to be taking care of the individual, not necessarily government. Uh, some other intellectual revolutions that come in this time period. Uh, Freud, for instance, becomes more popular in this time period. Uh, Sigmund Freud, uh, particularly his theory of unconsciousness. Uh, unconsciousness. If, you, if you're familiar with Freud, some of y'all are probably in philosophy or psychology. Uh, Freud is really big on the unconscious. The idea that the reason why you do things are things you may not be aware of. Like your unconscious self is the one that ultimately decides what you do and why you do it. Uh, what you actually do believe can be shown in things like dreams or Freudian slips. Uh, a Freudian slip is when you say one thing and it's like it's the thing you mean to say, but not the thing you want to say. So if, like, if, you, if you goof up and say something that you don't mean to say, but it's what you're actually thinking, that's called a Freudian slip. Uh, same thing with repression. Uh, Freud is very big on this idea of repression. This idea that, you know, there are things that happen to us that we, like, bury down deep down and we don't want to expose. Now, this impacts intellectualism because they're like, wow, if, we're to, if we don't even know what we're thinking or why we're thinking it, what's the point of trying to say we're going to use it for something good? Uh, same thing as Margaret Mead. Margaret Mead is an anthropologist. Uh, she writes a book called Coming of Age in Samoa, basically talking about a group of Pacific Islanders. And basically she argues that ideas of civilization are irrelevant. Um, basically that it's called cultural relativism. She's like, hey, here's this, you know, there are these people that live in the Pacific Islands. You might call them primitive, but if I, I look at the, I've examined them, and they have just as much value and worth as our own quote-unquote civilization. Now, a lot of intellectuals like this theory, this idea of like relativism, the idea that no people can be better than another people. Uh, this very much upsets traditional thinkers and adherents. Remember, one of the reasons behind like World War One is basically prove which country is stronger. Um, if you follow somebody like Mead, you're basically saying, hey, there is no such thing as stronger. Now, all these together kind of make a strong challenge that the West was no longer seen as the pinnacle of all society. Uh, you have this idea that Western civilization, Western culture, is the apex of all human existence, and that really gets challenged by people like Mead. 
Now, there are also a lot of new forms of entertainment becomes popular this time period. A lot of new forms of entertainment becomes popular. Remember, I am a cultural historian, so of course I'm going to talk all about this. Uh, for instance, jazz music. Jazz music comes popular with all sorts of white people. The keyword there is white people, which is new. Uh, jazz, in some form or fashion, have been around for a while um, in places like New Orleans. Remember, it was like brothel music. It was a music played in Storyville. However, because of the Great Migration, jazz musicians are going all over the place. They're going to all different places of the country. Uh, jazz music challenges all sorts of previously held beliefs. Remember, jazz is all about um, improvisation. You know, you can be a great jazz musician and not read music. Uh, you don't know your classical theory. Um, it's seen as a more primitive music. Uh, people, you know, intellectuals, quote unquote, the jerky white people, pretty much, are like, no, this is more primitive music. It's less repressed. It's seen as very sexual. Uh, very, very. It's seen as very sexual. Mainly being uh, um, demonized because it's too black. If you look right there, if you go over one slide, you'll see a picture of King Carter's uh, Jazz Orchestra uh, from Houston, Texas. Like I said, they're from Houston, Texas. They are not playing in Houston, Texas. They're playing in places like uh, New York. However, even in that, you have elements of um, segregation. If you go over one slide, you will see one picture of the Cotton Club. Uh, the Cotton Club becomes the most famous jazz club in this time period. Um, it's based in New York City. It's in Harlem. Uh, it's controversial for a few reasons. Number one, it is segregated. Um, although black people can be musicians at the Cotton Club, although they can be definitely be musicians at the Cotton Club, they can work at the Cotton Club, um, only white people could attend. Only white people could be customers. Only white people could be patrons. Also, it's very much done in a southern plantation aesthetic, hence the term cotton. So that's that. Also, there's some colorism. Uh, for instance, the young ladies, the dancers, they had to be very, very light-complexioned African-Americans. Uh, very dark African-Americans are not allowed to be members of the dance team at the Cotton Club. Uh, there's elements of beauty and things like that, which uh, the idea that certain African-Americans are viewed as more beautiful or uh, appealing, particularly black women, if they have a lighter complexion. Colorism, it's called. There are also some new writers. We talked about them before when we talked about the, um, the Lost Generation. You know, you're... Your uh, F. Scott Fitzgeralds, your, your Ernest Hemingways, uh, kind of ambivalence towards society and confusion about life in general. Uh, movies start changing. Movies do start changing. You have your first talking motion pictures. Uh, movies have been around for a while. Uh, things start changing with movies. Uh, they, they're becoming more popular with the higher classes. Uh, the movies themselves are becoming a bit more complex. Uh, gender becomes a lot more exposed on film. If you go over one slide, this is a picture of Clara Bow. Uh, generally, whenever we're in class, I show a clip of a Clara Bow movie. Um, if you want to watch it, it's on YouTube. It's well in the public domain. It's called It. Uh, if you ever heard the term It Girl, it originally applies to Clara Bow. Uh, Clara Bow is the first Hollywood sex symbol, like true sex symbol. I mean, you have people like Mary Pickford, who's known for being like a little girl. Like she played like the damsel in distress for like 40 years. Uh, Clara Bow, however, is very much known as like somebody who exudes sexuality, kind of. Uh, Bucks women's trends, uh, expectations for women's gender roles. You'll see in It, she's like kind of aggressive and pursuing a guy. That's something which is not normally seen before. Uh, the term It Girl, like I said, does apply initially to Clara Bow. Uh, she is the first real Hollywood sex symbol, this idea that this is who women are going to try to emulate. Uh, if you've ever heard of the character of Betty Boop, Betty Boop is a cartoon version of Clara Bow. Pretty much they are synonymous. Uh, she mainly does silent movies, though. She mainly does silent movies. You have your first quote-unquote talkies in this time period. Those are talking motion pictures. Um, 
The first talking motion picture is called The Jazz Singer, and it's controversial nowadays if you go over one slide for something pretty obvious. Yes, that is Al Jolson, a Jewish guy in blackface. Uh, the entire plot of this movie is that he is the son of a cantor, somebody who sings in a synagogue, but he wants to sing jazz, and that embarrasses his family. And so basically the entire movie is basically, can I be a, honor my parents while singing jazz? Um, at the time, blackface wasn't seen as controversial, but literally the entire movie is pretty much, if Al Jolson is performing, he's performing in blackface. I don't think we talked about blackface yet in this class. Um, basically, white people emulating black people or emulating characteristics and exaggerating stereotypes of African Americans, stereotypes that didn't actually exist. That's something that is common in this time period. And it's interesting that, like, you know, a very important movie when it comes to sound is also a very problematic movie when it comes to race. Uh, now, something also that really comes to emerge in this time period is the radio. If you go over one slide, you're going to see people listening to the radio. Uh, radio has become much bigger in this time period. Radio has become a lot cheaper. Uh, radio has become significantly cheaper in this time period. Like, a lot, a lot cheaper. Like, way cheaper in this time period. Radio has become cheaper. It allows a lot of different forms of music. Uh, news comes later. It's not quite as controversial in this time period as the movies. I uh, mean, because movies are a lot more popular. And it's a lot easier for people to emulate what they see in the movies than what they hear on the radio. So anyway, you have all these people listening to the radio. That pales in comparison, though, to like the biggest invention of the 1920s, in a sense. The one that really changes American society more than anything else. Go over one slide. That is the automobile. Now, this is not to say automobiles are invented in the 1920s. They're not. Likewise, automobiles are not invented in the United States. They're not. They're invented in Germany like 50 years before. Uh, what does happen in the 1920s is because of industrialization for World War II, uh, we're going to talk about that in a second, but basically because of World War II, a lot more stuff is being made. Uh, cars get a lot cheaper and a lot more prevalent. Uh, simple law of supply and demand, when the supply of something goes up, the price is going to go down. So Henry Ford in particular is the guy behind this. Uh, Henry Ford uh, perfects the assembly line. He doesn't invent the assembly line are standardized parts. It's something that some gun manufacturers had had before. Uh, the main thing that Henry Ford does, which changes everything, and I do mean everything, is Henry Ford allows for cars to be purchased on credit. For the first time, you could buy a car on credit. Uh, I don't know if anybody here has ever bought in a car, but maybe ask your parents or whoever owns a car. Uh, generally, you don't buy a car cash, unless it's like a used car or something, or you have a good bit of money, uh, generally, you buy a car on credit. You have a car note. It's you know, three to five years or something like that. I hear it now they're going up to seven years for car notes. Don't take out a seven-year car note. Just don't. Um, still, cars get a lot cheaper. Um, they're a lot more popular. And now more Americans can have them. Because Henry Ford, Henry Ford's real revolution is making it cheaper. If you, if you go over one slide, you're going to see uh, the ad for a Ford Tudor. Uh, look how cheap this car is. Look how cheap this car is. This car is $580. $580 for a car. Uh, what is that adjusted for inflation? Adjusted for inflation, that is about $7,500 in today money, which um, that's really good. I don't think you can buy a decent used car for $7,500, let alone a brand new car. 
And so, yes, I know the cars are a little bit, you know, more primitive. They don't have air conditioner and stuff. But still, I would happily buy a car for $7,500 if it's brand new. The car changes everything. Remember how we said trains changed the 19th century? Uh, cars totally changed the United States. Uh, there is no other invention, I would say, in transportation which is more American than the car. Like I said, the car is not invented in America, but it becomes synonymous with America. Uh, cars allow for changes in roads. Um, you know, Basically now, if you're in a car, you can decide where you want to go, when you want to go. Uh, because the United States is a continent-sized country uh, with a lot of empty space in between, the car is a necessity. You know, you can, you can decide when you go. Uh, for instance, whenever I leave in the morning, you know when I leave? Whenever I want to. I mean, generally I leave fairly early. It's unlike a train where basically you are on the train's decision. Likewise, the route. If I want to take a long route to work, I can do that in a car. You can't do that on the train. The train decides it. It allows for a lot more autonomy. Also, anonymity. If you're in a car, nobody can know your business. The car changes everything. It changes not just transportation, but vacation. It changes vacation a lot more when we have the interstate. We're talking about that with the 50s. Changes vacation. Uh, changes mobility. Changes work. And it really changes courtship. In this time period, because of the car, uh, the term going out becomes synonymous with dating. Before this time, pretty much all dating or courtship was done in the house. It was usually done in the young lady's house. You would sit in the parlor. Uh, you'd have a chaperone. Maybe your, your mom or dad or maybe an aunt or somebody would be there. And y'all would spend the time together. And then basically they would tell you you need to go. But now, thanks to the car, the way that young people get to know each other is by going out. You leave the house. I mean, for instance, if somebody asked you for a date on a first date and said, yeah, we're just going to hang out at your house, you'd be like, that's a pretty lousy date. You'd be like, no, I want to go somewhere. This whole mindset. Likewise, if you go in a car, it also allows for a bit of privacy. If you go over one picture, as you will see, yes, that's also allowed in cars. Uh, some of the detractors of cars said that it was bad for morality. They call them, quote-unquote, bedrooms on wheels. This idea, because you're in a car, you can do things in the back seat, you get a little bit more anonymity, a little bit more privacy. This also changes courtship entirely, too. So, yes, car changes quite a bit. It gets more young people outside of houses. Now, this is in, the cars really be able to go up, and I hinted about this before, because of a lot of changes in industry. Business is changing a lot during the 1920s. A lot of it is from the uh, aftermath of World War I. Uh, for instance, there's uh, continued concentration. Basically, bigger businesses are getting bigger uh, because they've rolled back some regulations. Uh, there's no limit to how big some of these businesses can get. Uh, you basically get to the point where only a few companies dominate the entirety of the economy. Uh, probably a great example of basically concentration is General Motors. Uh, you might have heard of General Motors. Theoretically, there were a bunch of different car companies that joined together. You know, you had Chevrolet, Buick, Cadillac. All these were different car companies. They joined together into one com car company because of productivity. Uh, because of all this uh, consolidation, productivity goes way up. In fact, productivity doubles. This is big. Because of the mechanization of World War One, because everybody's building faster, because of concentration, the number of stuff that is being produced has doubled. Because of mechanization, specialization of labor getting better, the amount of stuff that is produced is doubled. Like, that is making more stuff. 
more stuff is coming up. Likewise, you have something called scientific management. The idea that you're, that you're going to use the scientific method and scientific elements to help really manage your business. Basically decide, hey, what's the most scientifically efficient way we can make something? That improves productivity, which means there's just more stuff out there. There's double the stuff. Now, this would cause problems with labor because they're like, hey, there's more stuff when you get paid more. Uh, however, they start building in welfare capitalism. Companies become tired of dealing with strikes and unions, and they try to achieve workers' requests outside of the union. The idea being if a worker feels the company is happy with them, if the company cares about their needs, they're going to be less inclined to go on strike. Basically, they want to get the company to like be the one that the workers identify with. They don't want the worker to identify with other workers. That kind of undermines labor. That might be the beginning of unionization. They want them to identify with the company. Now, the prototypical example of this, the one I always like to use as an example, as the welfare capitalism example you probably are familiar with, is the company picnic. Anybody ever been to a company picnic? I remember whenever I was growing up as a kid in, um, in Baton Rouge, uh, a lot of my friends from school would go to the Exxon company picnic. Uh, Exxon's a very big employer in Baton Rouge, the big refinery, and every year they would have the Exxon company picnic. It'd be a really big deal. They'd have like, you know, they, you know Exxon would shell out a ton of money for hamburgers and hot dogs. They'd have all sorts of like potato sack races. Uh, they were giving away like amazing prizes. I remember one year, one of my friends from elementary school uh, he won, like, the three-legged race with his brother, and they got a Super Nintendo with, like, ten games. And it's like, wow. And they're like, yeah, it's great. You get these awesome company picnic shirts or just say how much the company cares for you. It's one day where the company is showing you how much they care. Now, here's the thing. And because of the company picnic, uh, they might do things like, you know, give away turkeys at Thanksgiving or uh, hams at Christmas. A lot of times it's food-related. Uh, but the way, I, the way this works is basically... This does cost the money. Uh, this does cost the company money. Absolutely, it costs the company money. But it's a lot less than actually giving people a raise. Does that make sense? Like, yeah, they you know they bought that. They bought several Super Nintendos to hand out as prizes. They might have spent a thousand dollars, not a thousand dollars, two thousand dollars worth of Super Nintendos back then for like several thousand different workers, and a few of them actually won prizes. Like, even though you get prizes. It's a lot cheaper than a raise. So when it comes to like union time, when it comes to like, hey, should I strike against the company? It's like, hey, you know what? Maybe I could get paid more, but they do give me a turkey at Christmas, so that's something. Uh, another thing that becomes common because of welfare capitalism is the eight-hour workday. Uh, companies start doing the eight-hour workday, and also weekends are becoming common. They say that's to like help workers make them feel better about themselves. Honestly, a big part of that is because productivity has gone so high. They're actually trying to reduce the amount of num the amount of stuff that's being produced. Uh, before this time, a 12-hour workday, six days a week, was the most common. By reducing the workday length, you could reduce the number of stuff being made. But even with that, even with the sheer amount of stuff that they're trying to reduce, there's still so much stuff being made. There's a new emphasis placed upon advertising. New emphasis placed upon advertising. They want to figure out ways that they can sell all this stuff. You know, if you can try to reduce su supply in one way, another way to do it is to increase demand. Advertising budgets go through the roof. The market becomes more saturated. Because of things like the radio, because of things like uh, movies, 
you're starting to have a lot more advertisement. Uh, you know, products need to be sold to people. Uh, they also start doing things like planned obsolescence and uh, the model year. Uh, for instance, like, hey, you know, there's the new cars. They're not fundamentally different, but you know what? It's a new model year. Maybe we'll add a new fender or something, a new color. It makes it look different. You want to buy a new one. Same thing with planned obsolescence. Uh, the idea behind planned obsolescence is you make a product that lasts long enough so the, you know, the uh, customer doesn't feel like they got cheated, but they don't necessarily feel like it's going to last forever. You might have heard like they don't make things like they used to. You're right. Before like 1900, you're expected to, before the 1920s, uh, you know, if you bought a toaster, it's expected to last for the rest of your life, so it's built to last the rest of your life. Now they're like, hey, if we can build a toaster that lasts for like, you know, six or seven years, people are going to feel okay about a toaster. They'll buy more toasters. Uh, you also have some of your first celebrity endorsements, the idea that a celebrity is going to endorse a product. People want to emulate their celebrity. Uh, these are people in cities making the ads uh, really try to emphasize, quote, unquote, city values. This is one of those things. Uh, have a couple of examples of some of these very problematic ads. Well, they're kind of deep. They're not even problematic. They're just kind of funny. So, for instance, if you ever one slide, you're going to see an ad for National Oats, uh, oatmeal, pure white oats. You know, why do you need to buy uh, these oatmeal? Well, guess what their tagline is? Makes kids husky. You know what husky means? Chubby, fat. We're going to thicken up your children by eating oatmeal. So this idea that they're appealing to your sense of, uh, you know, be a good parent, make sure your child is big and strong, just make them a husky child, feed them oatmeal. Now, what if your kid gets a little too husky? Well, when they get a little bit older they can start smoking cigarettes. Look at this ad. Avoid that future shadow. They have the guy with the big double chin. It's like he's gained weight. When tempted, reach for a lucky strike. It's toasted. No irritation, no cough. So this idea that you can smoke yourself thin, like whenever you're hungry, you know, don't eat too much, don't get too fat, just smoke a cigarette, that's healthier. Now I bet you're wondering, wait a minute, that's not healthy. That's not healthy at all. Well, go one more slide. You'll see what doctors have to say about that. 20,679 physicians say luckies are less irritating. They're toasted. Your throat protection against irritation against cough. So they know that by smoking lucky psych cigarettes, that healthy smoke is going to cover your throat and a nice smoke coating, which is going to prevent you from coughing. Um, is this a straight-up lie? Yes. Yes, it is. <laughs> um, the implications of all this, there's much more emphasis placed upon the market and consumption a lot more spread of new values. Uh, but the impact of all these changes, America becomes a much more consumer society. Uh, I've mentioned this a million times in this class. It bears repeating. Before modernity, before the 1890s, before the 1920s, America was very much a producer-centric society, which is basically based upon what can you make. In a consumer society, what can you buy is more important, particularly frivolous items. Like, if I can spend monies on something stupid and expensive, it shows just how much money I have. A person's reputation depended upon what they owned. Now, the spread of new values, who's making all these new values? Uh, some of the advocates of new values are urbanites. That's the main thing. Urbanites are the main supporters of these values, people living in cities, more anonymity. You also have intellectuals, even things like movie stars. Um, I would highly recommend you just find it find it that's that Clara Bow movie uh, find it, it's a great Clara Bow movie really talks about some of this new thing some of the new values yeah, that women can be more aggressive, that sort of thing uh, public behavior starts changing 
Uh, public behavior starts changing quite a bit. Uh, the best example of this is the flapper. If you go over one side, you're going to see some pictures of the flapper. There we go. There's some flappers. They're showing leg. They're, they have shorter skirts. They uh, trim their hemlines. Uh, flappers come about in this time period because of a lot of changes in women's clothing, uh, particularly with undergarments. Uh, without going into too much detail, basically corsets went away. Uh, corsets went away. They were replaced by modern undergarments. Uh, corsets are very tight and constricting. Um, basically, these new modern undergarments were seen as more freeing, more open. Uh, as you can see, they're, they're showing a bit more leg, uh, bobbing one's hair, showing a little bit more knee. Um, flappers are known for doing things like drinking, uh, smoking, wearing more revealing clothing. Uh, theoretically, the thing I want you to realize about flappers is that if you go over one slide, you're going to see this picture of what it costs to be a well-dressed flapper. It costs money. Like, flappers are women with money. It's basically, the flappers viewed as controversial because they had a job. That's the thing that was so controversial about flappers is the fact that it's a woman who has a job and she's spending it on herself or things that are viewed as frivolous. Remember, before this time, most women were not really privy to jobs or were not really given jobs too much in the more rural life places, in the more rural locations, more rural lifestyles, women don't have as many jobs. But as you can see with this well-dressed flapper, her outfit costs $346. As we already established, that's about five grand in, mo in modern-day money. That's almost half the price of a car in this time period to be a quote-unquote well-dressed flapper. You know, you have all these very expensive designer clothes. And that's the thing with the flapper. It's the fact that these are women with money that aren't necessarily rich women, if that makes sense. Like, they're women with money, they're women with a job, they're not necessarily, like, well-taken care of, sorry, not well-taken care of, like, kept women. Does that make sense? They're not, like, trophy wives. These are women with jobs. They're women with jobs. That's the controversial thing about flappers, is that they're women with jobs who are showing and flaunting their wealth. You'll see a few more pictures of these flappers. Uh, very short hair. Short hair is cooler. Like, it's less hot for temperature-wise. It's seen as boyish. Uh, the fact that you can see more of a woman's form because they're not in a corset anymore. Showing more leg. Uh, they're dancing with Charleston. You can see they have, you know, quote-unquote short skirts. Now, this really upsets defenders of the old morality. A lot of defenders of the old morality are upset about this. A lot of different groups are very upset. Uh, they feel that the changes are leading to moral ruin. They feel that the changes are going to lead to moral ruin, that American society is totally screwed up, that basically America is going to fall apart. Now, most of the people who are defending this old morality are just people living in rural areas, uh, more old-school people, people who don't necessarily live in cities. Uh, two of the more blatant, not blatant, but more outspoken groups, you have things like Christian fundamentalists. Uh, Christian fundamentalism really comes about in this first time, in this time period. It's very much a backlash against modernity. Very much a backlash against all this. All this idea of, like, we need to go back to traditional values, that old-time religion. It claims it's a lot older than it is. It's actually a backlash against modernity. Uh, another group that kind of overlaps with this, who we talked about last class, is the Second Clan. Uh, the Second Clan of this time period really broadens from just being anti-black to being more, quote-unquote, anti... There are a lot more different things. Uh, more more nativists. They call themselves the defenders of, of uh, womanhood. They're very anti-evolution, very anti-challenges uh, to the Bible, theoretically. There's a lot of backlash against pretty much any change. 
A lot of confrontations. A lot of confrontations go on in this time period. A couple basic clashes. Uh, well, the basic clashes were mainly about morality. Uh, particularly these two issues that you hear the most backlash about in this time period are prohibition and evolution. Uh, prohibition passed, indeed, during World War One. The idea that alcohol was now outlawed across the United States. However, flappers and their ilk flaunted this. You know, it was very easy to get bathwater gin, go to legal speakeasies, get something to drink. Those are very much in cities. Not entirely in cities. God, that's how NASCAR comes about, as moonshiners running away from the cops. But by and large, that's one of the big ones. Uh, there's also a lot of controversy about the role of African Americans. A lot of, lot of fighting about what's going to go with African Americans. Uh, for instance, a guy who comes about in this time period is Marcus Garvey. If you go over one slide, you will see Marcus Garvey. Uh, Marcus Garvey is an important black figure in this time period. Um, he very much admires Booker T. Washington, who we talked about last class. Well, a while back, I should say. Uh, he very much admires Booker T. Washington. He wants to meet Booker T. Washington. Uh, before he's able to meet Booker T. Washington, though, Booker T. Washington dies. About a week before they're actually scheduled to meet. Uh, Marcus Garvey is not American. I should iterate that. He is black, but he is not American. He is actually Jamaican. He was born in Jamaica. Uh, he serves as a printer's devil. A printer's devil is basically a printer's assistant's assistant. He gets his start doing um, publications, really newspapers. He moves to America, starts the UNIA, the United Negro Improvement Association, and basically he is very much arguing for a very pro-Africa, well, pro-Africana, pan-Africanism, pro-black agenda. He's basically saying African Americans are black people in general. We should all be as separate from the United States as possible. We should do our own thing. We should not try to ingrain ourselves in the American economy. We should try to make our own separate economy. An example he gives is baby dolls. He's like, hey, little black girls should be able to buy a little black baby doll that is made in a factory owned by a black person and distributed to other little black girls. He's like, it's silly that basically all this wealth, you know, little you know, little black girls buy baby dolls, but only baby dolls like you buy are white baby dolls, and it get, the money goes to a white person. We should have our own separate economy. We are arguing that basically, uh, sorry, he is arguing that, you know, African Americans, black people in general, not just African Americans, because remember, he is Afro-Jamaican. He's like, we should just have our own separate economy we should stay separate from white people, have our own separate everything. Remember, Booker T. Washington's like, hey, African Americans should be okay with working at the bottom. And W.D. Du Bois is like, hey, we should be working to be ingrained in all elements of white society and American society. Marcus Garvey is saying we don't need to be involved in it whatsoever. As time goes on, he becomes a little bit more militant. He starts dressing in uniform. Go over one slide, you're going to see him in uniform. There's Marcus Garvey in uniform. Um, Marcus Garvey starts talking more about we should leave America. We should go back to Africa. He starts a shipping line called the Black Star Line. It's boats. And he says, basically, we're going to start shipping things. We're going to start shipping equipment. But in time, we're going to ship ourselves back to Africa. He says, African Americans should leave uh, America, go back to Africa, make our own society. There's nothing for us here. Now, in turn, uh, W. Du Bois, who's still very much alive, does not like Marcus Garvey, and he responds with one of my favorite headlines of all time, Dr. Du Bois says Garvey talks too much. <laughs> Garvey would have been more successful had he been a businessman rather than a talker, Du Bois says. Uh, yeah, basically these two hate each other. Like, they hate each other, hate each other. 
Uh, Garvey responds that Dubois's organization, the NAACP, stands for the National Association for the Advancement of Certain People. Uh, not colored people, he says certain people, particularly light-skinned people. Uh, for instance, he says that the NAACP, well, not the NAACP, but there's an organization of a lot of different black leaders who literally write a letter to the President of the United States saying, you need to deport Marcus Garvey, he's the most dangerous man in America. They say Marcus Garvey is bad, he's the most dangerous man in America. These are black Americans saying, get rid of Marcus Garvey, he's bad news. Uh, when Garvey hears about this, he says the people who wrote the letter are, quote, a bunch of quadroons married to octoroons. Uh, the, remember the term quadroon, one-fourth black, octoroon, one-eighth black? Basically he's saying, they're not black. He says, I'm black, they're not black. Uh, one person in particular who uh, writes this letter, and a guy that I wrote a book about, so guess what, you're going to have to hear about him for 30 seconds or so, is Harry Pace. Uh, Harry Pace is one of Dubois's, um, like, protégés. Um, when Dubois is a college professor, Harry Pace is one of his students. Harry Pace spends a very long time working with Dubois, one of the first members of the NAACP. Actually starts the Atlanta chapter of the NAACP, so he's a pretty big deal. Uh, he owns a record label in this time period called Black Swan Records. Uh, they claim to be, uh, if you can see on that ad, the only records made using exclusively Negro voices and musicians. Claims to be an entirely black-owned record label with only black musicians. However, uh, it's problematic because it turns out Harry Pace is actually releasing songs by white artists under black names. So there we go. Um, that's all I'm going to talk about Harry Pace because... Look, I, I spent 10 years of my life writing a book about this guy, so I can't not talk about him, but there you go. That's Harry Pace. Uh, what ultimately happens to Garvey is he does get deported. Uh, he gets deported. Uh, he's accused of mail fraud. Uh, basically, he is uh, asking for funds for his uh, ships, but he's not buying new ships. He's buying old ships and painting them, but he's saying he's buying new ships and charging people as though he was buying new ships. Uh, that is fraud, and if it's done through the mail, that's mail fraud. That is something that um, the U.S. government can get you on. That's a federal offense. Um, he's basically, Garvey has offered the choice, look, either you can stay in jail in the United States or you can leave and promise to never come back. And he takes, I promise to leave and never come back. Uh, he spends the rest of his life in London. Spends the rest of his life in London. But even when he leaves, he had kind of alienated a lot of African Americans because he does something in his career which really upsets a lot of African Americans. Because Garvey says, you know what? I'm going to take some meetings with people. Remember, Garvey's whole big deal is he wants African Americans out of America. He says, we should go back to Africa. We should not be involved in white society. And he's willing to take meetings with people who also want the same thing, who want to support him. And guess who also supports this idea that African Americans should, like, go back to Africa and stay out of the United States in this time period? Who's very popular in this time period? That's right, the Ku Klux Klan. Marcus Garvey is taking several meetings with the Ku Klux Klan, which upsets, understandably, a lot of African Americans. He's like, guys, we, I want us to go back to Africa. They want us to go back to Africa, too. And pretty much most African Americans. Remember, he's Jamaican, like, oh my god, Marcus, you met with the Klan. He's like, yeah, but they want us to go back to Africa. They're like, you don't get it. That's like the Klan. It's like... You're taking meetings with the Klan, because that's what you're doing. 
anyway, that's Marcus Garvey and W.E. Dubois. Uh, if you want to know more about them, either read my book or take my African American history class. Now, the big fun one, the big fun crazy one, the probably the most controversial trial this time period, it was called the trial of the century until the OJ trial, is the John Scopes Monkey Trial. This one has to do with evolution. If you go over one slide, you will see a picture of John Scopes. John Scopes is a science teacher in Dayton, Tennessee. He's originally from New Orleans, I believe. A member of the ACLU. <coughs> he wants to challenge the evolution law. Basically, there's a law in Tennessee saying that teaching evolution is illegal. If you're going to teach evolution in a classroom, even if it's science, it is illegal. To teach it is illegal. John Scopes, I believe he's originally from, um, he's not originally from Dayton, I believe he's originally from New Orleans, remember the ACLU. He basically does this as a test, all right? This is a total setup job, kind of akin to Plessy v. Ferguson. He's a young man, he goes to Dayton, Tennessee to teach science, and he straight up teaches evolution. He teaches evolution to the students of Dayton, Tennessee, a very, 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 at 20, very, very, very small town in Tennessee. It's... Very south-central Tennessee, like kind of near the Alabama-Mississippi border. Very small town, nothing there, very small town. Now, he is arrested and charged. Well, he is charged with this crime. I mean, the, he's not really arrested because the bail's so light. But he's charged with the crime of illegally teaching evolution. He's charged with the crime of illegally teaching evolution, which is a crime in Tennessee, He's like, you know what, I'm going to defend myself. I'm going to call on the ACLU to defend me. This turns into the greatest media circus of all time of the time period. Uh, in his defense, basically the ACLU hires the greatest defense attorney in America in this time period. Uh, the greatest uh, defensive attorney in all this time period is a man by the name of Clarence Darrow. Uh, Clarence Darrow is known for taking the cases nobody else will take. Uh, he will defend the indefensible. Uh, his most famous case in this time period is a case in, before this case. This Ty Far becomes his most famous case. Uh, before this case, however, his most famous case is a case in Chicago where basically he defends two teenage boys who kill a younger boy. Uh, he argues that the two teenagers, I mean, they're not even teenagers, they're like 12 years old. They're 12 years old, they killed an 8-year-old. Uh, he argues pretty much they are so rich that they didn't understand there'd be consequences. His defense is basically, he doesn't say that they didn't kill them. But he says basically, yes, you know, the, the, these two these two 12-year-olds killed this 8-year-old boy, but they can't be held in judgment for it because they were so rich they didn't know there'd be consequences. Uh, you might hear this as the affluence of defense. You know that rich people are so rich they don't know what they do is bad. Uh, it doesn't work, but it basically gets them a reputation as this is a guy who will defend everybody. Uh, he's an outspoken atheist. He doesn't believe in God necessarily. He believes in science, whatever. And so he, you know, even though this is supposed to be a very small case... You know, just a really no defense attorney. The ACLU, who John Skips is a member of, brings in the biggest defense attorney they can, Clarence Darrow. This makes this into a media circus. They're like, oh my gosh, you know, the, this huge, big time defense attorney is coming to this small town to defend the case. And so all of a sudden, a call goes out for a prosecutor, all right? Somebody helped the state of Tennessee, you know, basically prosecute this guy for a crime. And not only that, kind of defend the Bible. Now, can we think of anybody in history that we've talked about so far that um, is big on Christianity, but also big on the law? Yeah. Sorry, did, did y'all hear something? Was that my dog? Yeah. Did, did y'all hear any? Cross a goal! 
Carlson Cole. That's right. Right. Yeah, that's my dogs now. William Jennings Bryan is back, baby. I told you, he's going to show up when you least expect it. He is everywhere. William Jennings Bryan takes up the call as he's like, I'm going to defend the gospel. I'm going to defend religion. I'm going to defend the United States. This is my whole shtick. I'm William Jennings Bryan. Cross the gold, cross the gold. Look at me, look at me, look at me, look at me. I've run for president three times. You know, three failed times, nine three times. Nah, there's a religion joke in there. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, it's okay. Uh, you know, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And this turns what would have been already a pretty big deal because Clary is coming up to a total OMG, we need to show up. Go over one slide. You're going to see what's going on here. You know, the Anti-Evolution League, uh, the Conflict Hell in the High School. That sounds like some of y'all's high school experiences. <laughs> you know, Brian's books, you can buy them here. Somebody brought a, a monkey in a, in a suit. Pretty like, oh, here's your ancestor. It's your, it's your uncle. It's your monkey's uncle. If you go over one slide, you're going to see a picture of Clarence Darrow on the left, William Jennings Bryan on the right. Uh, that's them during the trial. I just want you to imagine. It's this, it's, it's, it's the mid-20s. Uh, there is no air condition in a small town in Tennessee. Uh, th this is 1925. You know, mid-20s, tiny town, middle of nowhere, no air condition, small courtroom. It's the middle of July. The courtroom is designed to fit maybe 50 people. There are several hundred people from, like, different newspapers and radio and just people coming to watch the trial. Because you get, you know, this is a show. This is a major deal. You get the two biggest names that, like, Clarence Darrow, the guy who will defend anybody, and William Jennings Bryan, who's like the William Jennings Bryan of William Jennings Bryan gang, Mr. Cross of Gold. He is, it, it's, it's coming. You can watch it. So everybody comes. This becomes the biggest media circus of the time period. Would have been the biggest media circus in U.S. history had it not been for the O.J. trial, which we'll talk about later this semester. Now, the trial, it goes on for a while. They're not just talking about, did this guy teach evolution? They talk about, is evolution okay? What's the right of it? You know, is the Bible accurate? And so kind of the most dramatic part, the most dramatic part, which is something I'd act out in class, but it's not as fun as wrestling the devil, don't worry, is basically Darrow calls William Jennings Bryan to the sand to serve as a biblical expert. Basically, Darrow's like, Mr. Bryan, I, I hear you consider yourself a biblical expert. And he's like, well, I've read the Bible at a time or two. He's like, I call you to the stand to defend the Bible. He's like, basically, you say that the Bible is inerrant. You say the Bible is perfect. I've got a bunch of questions for you about the Bible. So Brian, you know, swears to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, puts his hand on the Bible. And Darrow's like, you know, Mr. Mr. Brian, you, you believe every word of the Bible, right? He's like, yes, I do. He's like, and you believe that it's it's not allegorical, it's, it's literal, it's free from interpretation. You can just believe the Bible as it's written. And Brian's like, absolutely, that is 100% what I believe. Then Darrow's like, okay, I got, I got a couple questions for you. I got, I got a few questions for you. Um, well... You know, in the book of Genesis, um, it said God created the, the heavens and the earth in seven days, right? Seven days and seven nights. And then Baron's like, no, 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 no. It says he created the heavens and the earth in six days. And on the seventh day, he rested. And Darrow's like, yeah, yeah, okay, you're right. So yeah, you got me there. You know, you know your Bible pretty well. Um, how could there be days if God didn't create the sun until the third day? Brian's like, well, you know, I wasn't there. I, you know, you're going to have to ask him, but I have my shirt. If it's in the Bible, that's how it is. Darren's like, okay. No, another question. Uh, later on in Genesis, it says after, after Cain slew Abel, he and his wife left, uh, left Adam and Eve, 
and, and went off with his wife, and you know he fathered his own descendants. Where did Cain's wife come from? If the Bible says there's only Adam, Eve, Cain, and Abel, where, where did Cain's wife come from? They, they don't mention anybody else before this. Brian's like, oh, okay. And then, and then, and then Derek goes a bit further. He's like, what about, what about the book of Jonah? It says in the book of Jonah that, uh, you know, Jonah, after he, after he leaves away from Nineveh, he's fleeing from Nineveh, uh, he's swallowed by a, by a, great, by a giant whale. And, and Brian's like, no, 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 it actually says, it actually says a, a great fish. It says a great fish. And so Dara's like, but we know according to science that whales are actually mammals, not fish. So, so, so which one is it? Is, is it a whale or is it a fish? Is it a mammal or is it a fish? And actually, after all these questions, Brian just kind of outbursts like, well, you can't take it like that. You, have to, you can't just take it literally. You have to interpret something somewhere. And Dara smiles because he feels like he has Brian. He's like, Brian, I got you. Because Brian in that moment admitted, you can't take it all literally. And that was Dara's point. After this, Brian is dejected. That's the climax of this whole trial. Uh, Brian is dejected. He kind of sits down because he said on the stand, under oath, that he doesn't believe you can take the Bible at its word. You have to interpret it some. It's not exactly literal. But was that what the trial was all about? No. The trial was actually about... Did John Scopes teach evolution? The answer was yes, yes he did. All this other stuff was just window dressing. So John Scopes was fined a $10 fine. It was it was like 10 to $50. I think it was $10. $10 fine for teaching evolution, and that was that. The fine was paid immediately by the ACLU, and it was actually waived in time. So that was all this trial was about. It was all about $10 lousy dollars. Basically, it was a $10 fine, but it made this whole trial... Uh, after the trial, Brian is a little dejected. He dies shortly thereafter. Uh, after the trial, William Jennings Bryan dies. William Jennings Bryan dies. So, sadly, he uh, he will not be showing up in the rest of this class. There will be no more William Jennings Bryan. It's fun to hear from him for a while, but he's gone. But never count him out. Uh, the response of most Americans to all this, I'll end with this, because we haven't gone on for a while. Uh, the response to most Americans to the Roaring Twenties, to all this stuff... Um, most people don't really come down on one side or the other, but they really see benefits in both. They, they see that, you know what, this new urban culture, this new industrialization is useful. There are good things to come out of it. But they also see benefit in the old ways, in the old religion, that sort of things like that. Americans tend to be pretty pragmatic, and they're doing this as a time period. The, time, the 20s are definitely a time of flux. Things are about to change in the 20s. The 20s is basically a, a switch from the, you know, the older world to the modern world, from producer to consumer. Uh, we don't know what would have happened after this, though, because they really end with a bang with the Great Depression. The Great Depression ends in the 1920s and really changes the way people view the 1920s. But that's something we're going to talk about next class. Now, I will give you a heads up. The reading this week isn't necessarily tied to the lecture. The reading is about the Sacco and Vanzetti trial. Now, I haven't talked about the Sacco and Vanzetti trial because what we're doing this week with the primary source is a bit different. You're going to have to do research. Next week is a research one where you have to find more context about it. I'm only going to give you the final statement. I'm only going to give you the final statement, literally their last words before execution. I'll, give you that, I'll, I'll spoil the ending. Both Sacco and Vanzetti are executed. But why are they executed? What was their crime? That's something we're going to work on in class when it comes to our primary source research. But with that, this is Dr. Tully talking about the 1920s.